0: Support for Talk of the Towns comes from the Maine Community Foundation. For 25 years, partnering with donors and nonprofits and communities statewide to strengthen Maine through
1: grants and scholarships, on the web at mainecf.org. It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next.
0: talking about putting an end to domestic violence and the work of the Next Step Domestic Violence Program of Hancock and Washington Counties. We're glad to have some folks in the studio who can help us with that to- topic. I'll uh, welcome Lori Fogelman from uh, the Next Step Domestic Violence Program. Welcome to you, Lori.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting us.
0: Great. And with um, Lori is Kelly Brown. Um, Kelly's going to be talking a little bit about some of the initiatives that uh, the Next Step domi- Domestic Violence Program is, is uh, going on. Welcome to you, Kelly.
1: Thank you, welcome.
0: And Rick Doyle. Rick is uh, working um, with the program as a um, somebody concerned with legal assistance. Welcome to you, Rick.
3: That's great. Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: Rick, let's start with you and just work our way back sure. ch- um, around. Um, tell us a little bit about um, how you get involved in, in this kind of work. Well,
3: uh, I'm the uh, I'm the staff attorney at The Next Step, and uh, I was very fortunate in that I attended law school just a few years ago, uh, graduated five years ago, and uh, happened to graduate at a time when The Next Step was looking for a new staff attorney. Uh, I'm originally from Hancock County, so I was delighted to come back to this part of the world and um, put in a resume. Never thought I'd uh, be considered, you know, (laughs) as as, uh, I thought I'd have some pretty stiff competition, but I was very, very fortunate. And uh, I think when I started working, I I, uh, told the next step that I would be here for a couple of years, promised him I would make that commitment. And I've been here five years and I don't see the end of it. I'm (laughs) really happy doing what I'm doing.
2: Oh, that's great. We love it when he says that. That's really (laughs) important. I wanted to say that I think the thing that impressed us most when we interviewed Rick was that he said that he became an attorney in order to make a difference in the world, not just to Mm. make money Mm. or some of the other Mm. things people think when they talk about becoming an attorney. And he's really lived up to that.
0: So that's really important. That's great. That's great. Uh, Kelly, how about you? Tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got involved in this work.
1: I am the program manager with the Next Step Domestic Violence Project, and I started this work because I took the 24-hour hotline training that is offered each year at the Next Step, and as soon as I took that training, I knew this is what I want to do, so I went back to school to get my degree in social services, and I called up Lori and said, I'm ready, Mm -hmm. and luckily there was a job in community education available, and I've been there three years.
0: WONDERFUL. WONDERFUL. WE'LL ASK YOU MORE ABOUT THAT VOLUNTEER PROGRAM BECAUSE I'VE I've TALKED WITH FOLKS WHO'VE TAKEN THAT PROGRAM AND IT IS A LIFE-CHANGING EXPERIENCE TO to BE INVOLVED AS A VOLUNTEER.
1: YES, IT IS. IT'S A WONDERFUL OPPORTUNITY.
0: GREAT. AND, LAURIE, TELL US A LITTLE BIT ABOUT YOUR BACKGROUND AND HOW YOU CAME TO to WORK WITH THE NEXT STEP DOMESTIC VIOLENCE uh, PROJECT.
2: WELL, I'VE BEEN INVOLVED IN THE GENERAL MOVEMENT FOR A VERY LONG TIME. IN FACT, IT WAS ABOUT 1978, 1979 THAT I FIRST BECAME INVOLVED IN THE BOARD, WHAT BECAME THE BOARD the shelter in Rockland County, New York. We, mm. uh, we actually formed a group, and when we realized there was this huge need, and I helped paint the walls of the first shelter and whatever all else down there. So, I've been involved in one level or another for a very long time. Nine years ago, when I moved to this part of the world full-time, I was able to interview on my very first day here at The Next Step and started working.
0: Mm, great. Help us um, listeners understand um, the, the kind of the, the definition perhaps of of domestic violence and some of the dimensions of uh, um, of the issue I, I've said in the promotional um, tape that we made that um, it has a definition, but it has dimensions, and those dimensions are people absolutely.
2: I think the biggest thing that people really need to understand is that domestic violence isn't accidental it's not just a single action that happens once in a while. It's planned, purposive behavior. It's a whole series of actions that are designed to accomplish a goal. People tend to think that, oh gosh, they just lost control. Abusers don't lose control. They're very carefully planning a way to exert power and control over another human being. They feel they have the right to behave the way they do. They believe they have that right. And that's a very hard thing to change that belief system is very difficult. But the actual person who's living with domestic violence can tell you that the whole pattern of behavior over and over and over again, that very often it starts at one level and then escalates once people kind of become inured to that level and maybe don't respond quite as quickly. And it can escalate to very dangerous and awful situations. We've certainly seen awful things happen here in our state. It's very discouraging that for so many years, domestic violence has been behind about 50% of the homicides in the state year after year after year. That's obviously the worst case scenario with domestic violence. Uh, The latest stats from the Department of Public Safety say that there were 27 homicides so far in September,
0: and that 16 of those were domestic violence related. So it's a very serious problem. Mm. And the dimensions um, in terms of people, um, that gets to some of the myths that this is um, issues that are related to um, income status or education status or something else. But you're going to tell us it isn't. Certainly not. People honestly have a lot of
2: beliefs, myths that have cropped up about domestic violence over the years. And I think that partly that helps people to just feel like, well, it's not really my problem. But it is, it's everybody's problem. It happens on all socioeconomic levels. It happens to all education levels. I think one of the most touching moments I remember was a woman talking to me one time and she said, I have a master's degree. I never thought it would happen to me, but it can, Mm -hmm. and it does, and it happens to everyone at every level. It uh, does not depend um, upon stress. It doesn't depend on really rough economic times, which certainly we're all going through right now. Um, substance abuse is a link in a way only because once people are already abusers or once they're already inclined to abuse, they may use substance abuse as an excuse. And in fact, it does uh, definitely cause some people to lose inhibitions. So things can get worse because of issues like that, but it doesn't cause it.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm. So, what other dimensions um, might listeners kind of need to know as w- as we think about um, the issue itself? Um, are there other issues or other dimensions? Well, I think it's the whole pattern of behavior that people really need to understand. That
2: um, when a lot of times when I've done presentations in the public, I know people tend to kind of think, well. Um, Maybe that doesn't really relate to me. I've done Mm -hmm. presentations. I do a lot of employment, for instance, presentations. The very first place that people sometimes are allowed to go outside of a domestic violence situation is to work. And so the symptoms will show up there for the first time. So I like to have managers aware of um, what to kind of look for and how to prepare and how to make their employees safer. And when I've done some of those presentations, I'll see some of the people there sitting there looking horrified. And even I've had people start to cry while I was talking, which is kind of disconcerting. But it's, it's because we go over that whole pattern of behavior, that it isn't just violence, that the physical violence or the sexual assault or, what, or whatever, that's the outside thing, that people see that and they say, well, if that ever happened to me, I would leave in a second. They don't understand all the pieces inside of it, the domestic violence wheel that we use, the power and control wheel that that kind of spells it all out, all the ways in which people are, for instance, isolated from family and friends and the resources that they might normally have. They're told over and over again, well, your mother doesn't like me, so you got to stop talking to her. And in fact, mom may be saying things like, "You know, I don't like the way he or she is treating you. We do uh, work with both men and women, although the vast majority are women. Um, they they use children against the the other partner. You can't leave because, you know, if you do, I'm going to get custody of those kids. I'm going to take them away from you. You'll never see them again. Um, they use economic uh, issues. You can't go out and get a job because you're flirting with the boss, and and that's horrible. There's, there's um, just so many different levels and so many different kinds of threats and so many ways people wear people down. You'd be surprised, I think, how many times I've heard people say, that they're actually timed when they go to the bathroom, that that's one. Of, that's just an ultimate level of power and control. You have five minutes in there. You better be out of there at the end of five minutes. That mm. people are have their uh, mileage checked constantly. You said you were going to go into town. You better have gone exactly 11.3 miles, which is the distance into town. And if you go 11.5, then I think you went somewhere else. There's so many levels of the control that are exerted that the person who's subject to that control after a while, just finds themselves apologizing all the time and, and worrying all the time and just trying to respond in how, whatever way they can that will make the situation easier for them. It's mm-hmm. really hard.
0: Mm-hmm. So as we think about kind of tracing um, this issue and, and community response to it um, over the years that you've been involved, um, take us back to you know, kind of pre- awareness that this was a significant societal issue, if you could, and then and bring us forward. Sure. The, well, the movement, I
2: mean, absolutely started from uh, one person just taking somebody in their house and kind of hiding them because they were a friend and they knew that that person was in trouble. And then finding that somebody to- that friend maybe told somebody else and the next thing they knew, they had two people <laughs> that were hiding out in their basement. And then people started trying to pull together resources and how to p- help people that were going through this situation. I know a lot of years ago, actually, before I became um, formally involved, I was friends with a group of um, women, and one of them first disclosed that she was being abused but was so shamed at that point. And there still is, frankly, a lot of shame involved in it. There's a lot of... The abuser blames the, the victim a whole lot, and, and the victim tends to accept somehow that I'm supposed to be responsible and I'm supposed to do something that would make the situation better. So there's a lot of shame. There's a lot of it's a dirty little family secret. It used to be um, really huge. It was really, really hard to get people to respond to it, to believe that they could go forth and get help. And frankly, the whole legal system didn't react very well. That's been a big issue uh, that we've had over the years is getting the legal system to respond in a way other than, you know, just kind of taking the, the purpose side and saying, just calm down now, you know, uh, we'll leave if you just calm down and we know everything will be all right. And, um,
0: and then kind so of So when you say legal, you're talking about law enforcement through the court system.
2: Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. It's been a big, complicated thing. And it's another thing we continue to work on is educating and working with the law enforcement community. Mm-hmm. That first responder can be a hugely important person and whether the person ever comes forward mm-hmm. again for help.
0: Right. I'm assuming that um, first response is to um, work with victims to get them safe. Absolutely. Second response is to provide kind of community awareness as to what's going on. I think another thing that I've seen is um, uh, bringing men into this issue, it's talk so a little bit important. about that, and then we can introduce another guest by phone.
2: Well, I'd love to actually uh, let Kelly start to okay. talk to you a little Great. bit about this. She's been working really hard on this a call to men program that we're we're always, as as a domestic violence worker for a long time, or at least on one level or another, I can say we've always known that um, sometimes uh, really good social ideas get kind of marginalized by calling them, for instance, women's issues, right. and and. And domestic violence has been called a women's issue and therefore maybe not quite as important as it would otherwise be for a long time. And we're, we've are we always been aware that it's it's a human issue and mm-hmm. that everybody needs to get involved. Mm-hmm.
0: So tell us a little bit about um, the call to, to, to men.
1: Yeah, we just started this group. It was um, about two months ago. And we really wanted to reach out to men and get them more involved in this movement because I think many times men want to get involved, but they don't know how. They don't know yeah. the safe way to approach it. So we reached out into our community and we really tried to get a man from sort of every discipline either from the business community, the clergy aspect, uh, getting coaches, teachers from schools. And so we drew in men from different disciplines and we started talking to them about our movement, what we do. and. I was just, I was so excited about the response that we got, and they really wanted to learn more. And so many of them said, you know, I've heard those noises before coming from next door where I thought someone was being hurt but I didn't know how to respond. I didn't know if I should make that call to law enforcement. I didn't know if I should speak with him the next day or speak to her. Um, and I didn't know how to do that safely because mm-hmm. I had to be concerned for my own family as well. And so we really started talking about some of those issues, um, what's OK to do, what's not OK to do, and um, how we can respond in a safe way. And also, more importantly, it's about how can we get involved in the movement, not necessarily intervening in any way, but just showing showing we support you and mm-hmm. we care mm-hmm. and uh, to let survivors know that you're not alone in this.
0: Right, and and not all men um, have the same belief system, so you might find some support in, in other men. Absolutely. In that, in that
1: Absolutely. I think it's really validating for a woman to hear even more so from a man saying that behavior is not okay.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, let's go by phone to talk with Rick Otto, who is um, participating in the Call to Men um, effort. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Rick. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about yourself and and what drew you to become involved in Call to Men.
4: Well, I'm, I'm the case manager for the Hancock County Adult Drug Treatment Court, and obviously, uh, a lot of uh, I wouldn't say a lot, but. Uh, some of our uh, clients uh, have had domestic violent relationships either prior to entering our program or we became aware of it while they were in our program addressing their addiction issues.
0: Mm. And so you saw the issue um, up front. Um, what what um, particularly appealed to you in terms of a call to men? I,
4: I, I like the idea of trying to make the community more aware of this uh, quite significant problem uh, probably more prevalent than people would want to acknowledge, and uh, to be part of an effort to try to educate the community and dispel some dispel some of the mythology that's involved between. Uh, not only the vi- uh, why the victims do what they do, but also why the perpetrators do what they do.
0: Mm. And and in your colleagues who have uh, joined with you in the Hancock County area, um, what kinds of stories have you heard? Of? What's the what's um, what's your experience in, in working in this group? It's, it's relatively young, Kelly. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. Go ahead, uh, Rick.
4: I've attended uh, two meetings and. Uh, I think that the meetings have been very interesting and very educational, even for those of us that have dealt with this subject over a significant period of time
0: and And um what what lessons have you kind of taken away from those two meetings, and what would you encourage um, um, other men in hancock county to to consider to to perhaps be a part of this?
4: well i I think that one two things if Maybe I should address some of the mythology. Uh, Some people feel that the perpetrators just have anger management issues and they can't control themselves, and that can't be farther from the truth. In some circumstances, if not all, uh, these men use anger as a means of manipulation. It's uh, one of their tools that they use to intimidate and control, to exercise power over the individual um, in, in usually that individual is their girlfriend or their spouse. Someone who has anger management issues, uh, they can't control their anger no matter where they are. Mm. And one of the things that I, I learned at a seminar, uh, a counselor said that, you know, if I have two uh, gentlemen in my office waiting to see me, I can tell you in 30 seconds which one is the individual that's there for stress anger management and the other one that's there for domestic violence. The anger management guy will look at his watch and be really upset because I was two or three minutes late and will clearly indicate to me that he's very unhappy and does not believe he should be there. The domestic violent individual will come up to her or him and shake their hand and greet them and be very courteous and start manipulating from minute one to try to indicate to them that he's a very good individual, he's a kind individual, and all these things have been said about them is wrong.
0: Wow. Wow. That's a, a really telling story. Um, why why would you uh, or how would you encourage other men to get involved?
4: Well I mean I, I have uh, contacted a, a couple of individuals that are very involved in other public issues and I've asked them if they would like to join the group and so far um, one of them has said they would and the others haven't responded um, and hopefully they'll be attending the group uh... in the near future
0: so they can um... kind of find out before they just jump in they can kind of come to a meeting and, and see if that's for them
4: yes it, it, there's no real formal process you don't get screened or anything it, they, they just want someone there that's willing to make an effort and to listen and try to learn and then be part of uh, the solution
0: great stay on the line with us and we'll see if kelly can um... kind of add to that story what else are you trying to to accomplish through um... call to men
1: what we're trying to accomplish is community education. Um, some of the ideas that this group has come up with already is they would like to create a video hmm. um, that would help... That would have to do with our community. It would actually be people who have been affected by domestic violence in Hancock County that could share their stories, because I think sometimes that really brings it home when it's someone you know or it's your neighbor saying, this is what happened to me. Mm. So we've been talking about creating this movie and talking about what is domestic violence and is it happening here and how prevalent is it. The other thing that we want to do is to get into the schools. And I think there's a different um, message that comes across if it's me speaking to a young individual, especially a young boy, saying this behavior is not okay than coming from a man. Mm. And so mm. we really want to have other educators, from a call to men, coming with us to the schools mm. to talk to these young boys and saying this is what's not okay. It's also really about stereotyping how we perceive a woman is supposed to act one way and a man is supposed to act another way. And what happens to us when we jump out of that role, mm. for example, if a man was to do something that maybe you primarily see women do um, for example maybe they're into dance Mm -hmm. or something Mm -hmm. like that then what kind of names might they be called you Mm. know if they're not tough or strong or put together or if a man cries what are what are they called especially when you're talking about young children in schools Mm -hmm. you know you hear some horrible names and what what kind of names are put to a woman who maybe is more aggressive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so it's so really we, touching on stereotypes as well.
0: Right. And, and men and women are both put in boxes. Absolutely. And, unless there is someone who says you don't have to live in that box. Mm-hmm. And especially if that's, a, as you say, a man talking to a boy, um, that's going to make a real difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Great. I believe so.
0: Great.
2: Sorry? One one of the really moving ads I think that uh, we've seen on TV that wasn't created by our agency by any means, but it's a good domestic violence kind of message thing is an ad that people may have seen on TV where a father and a son are sitting in a restaurant and they hear an, uh, another couple behind them and they hear the the male partner becoming increasingly verbally abusive and threatening to the female to the to point of where it's really everybody's kind of flinching and and, and ducking. And when I see that ad, I think... There are so many ways that I would like to see the community respond to that, that I would like to see that that father respond to that. And I think that most of the time people think, well, we're asking him to like jump up and physically intervene and maybe get hurt. Mm -hmm. And that would be Mm -hmm. dangerous. And um, I'm not suggesting that that's necessarily even the best thing to do. And and in a lot of circumstances, it's not. Mm -hmm. But one thing right away is to take advantage of that moment to or immediately after they are to say to his sons, that's not how a man behaves. That mm. is not a man. That's n- that's disgusting behavior. I never want you to mm. think that that's how you're supposed to behave. And, mm. and and to take that advantage, I think as Kelly sort of mentioned, a man talking to a man sometimes just gives a different level of acceptance, at least of what the message is. That that, that idea that what constitutes a man and, and A MAN IS NOT A PERSON WHO WOULD RAISE HIS HANDS TO SOMEBODY THAT THEY LOVE. I MEAN, I THINK THAT'S REALLY AN ESSENTIALLY IMPORTANT MESSAGE. AND IF WE GOT NOTHING BUT THAT OUT OF A CALL TO men, THAT WOULD BE WONDERFUL. Mm. BUT I ALSO THINK THAT um, GOING FORWARD INTO THAT SITUATION, IF HE HAD BEEN ABLE TO SEPARATE HER AT SOME POINT AND JUST SAY, ARE YOU SAFE? CAN I DO ANYTHING TO INCREASE YOUR SAFETY? DO YOU NEED ANY HELP? I KNOW THERE'S A DOMESTIC VIOLENCE, YOU KNOW, SHELTER NEARBY. I could give you the information or I know that this restaurant has it or something like that. That mm. um, she would need to be separate from the the abuser at that point, obviously. It wouldn't be safer to do anything else. And At that moment, maybe she chooses to go ahead and go with him because it's the least dangerous thing. But when you give information to people, you empower them and, mm. and you never know when they're going to be able to pick that piece of information up and use it. And And that's why we're so thrilled that Rick is involved and that other people are involved because the more people that know these things and are willing to do
0: something about it, the more the world really will change. Right. Rick, any hopes for the future of this particular group that you're involved in?
4: Yeah, I hope that uh, when we get rolling and we know how we're going to approach this and do other things like we're doing now on this radio show, that uh, there will be a, a community awareness and maybe other things will happen and Maybe people will uh, begin to realize that uh, something that was going on next door is is not normal, that there is something wrong there, and they'll they'll be able, because they've been listening to um, what our group has been doing, they'll know how to approach it in an appropriate way to get uh, that woman some help.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much for being with us uh, by phone this morning. No problem. Great. Uh, That was Rick Otto, who is uh, part of a group in the Ellsworth area um, called Call to Men. Uh, Kelly, when does that group meet, and, and how would people learn more about that?
1: We meet on Tuesdays each month. That Tuesday varies because we really look at the group and say what Tuesday is going to work for you. So the best way for someone to get involved is to give us a call at the next step, ask to speak with Kelly Brown, and I can set you up. We'd love to have you.
0: Great. Well, I'll remind listeners that they're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're speaking about putting an end to domestic violence and the work of the Next Step domestic violence program of Hancock and Washington counties. Um, You can participate as well. Um, Give us a call if you'd like at 1-866-625-9378. That number again, 1-866-625-9378. We welcome your your, um, experience we'd welcome your questions um, this morning on Talk of the Towns. In the studio with us, we have Laurie Fogelman, who is executive director of The Next Step, Kelly Brown, who is a program um, a manager, is that how yes. you feel? And Rick Doyle, who um, works with legal assistance. So I'm glad to have all of them with us. You can participate, um, as I said, by phone, 1-866-625-9378. Kelly, what are some of the other things that you're working on um, as, we, as we look forward? Um, something called Ties That Bind,
1: Yes, because October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and so we really started thinking, how can we get more people involved? And I believe many, many people within the community, they want to be involved, they want to show survivors that they support them, but they're just not sure how. So Ties That Bind is a fun and creative way for businesses to get involved. And all that we ask is on October 30th to sort of end Domestic Violence Awareness Month. We all wear purple in unison to show survivors that we are there to support them.
0: That's great. Yeah. And how's that going? What's been the response?
1: It's great. We have 30 businesses already involved. It's really big in Ellsworth because last year we really focused in the Ellsworth area and we want to branch that out. We would love to have more participation in the MDI Bucksport area. So any business who wants to get involved, there's still time. Give us a call and we can get you the purple attire. And we also deliver all that stuff. There's really nothing for the businesses to do. You know, we'll, we'll bring it to you. You just have to let us know that you want to be involved.
0: So what would go, you know, that would be like a sign or brochures or um, what, would, what would the business actually get as a result of their participation to help them?
1: Well, we would ask them to purchase either a purple t-shirt, a tie or a scarf or a hat mm-hmm. and they just wear that that day. Great, great.
0: And what else? You've got some purple lights coming up somewhere.
1: Yes, the purple (laughs) lights went out. That is actually a statewide initiative through the Maine Coalition to End Domestic Violence. And we thought it would be really nice for every project within the state to put up purple lights at least on one tree in the area. And we have ours in Ellsworth at the park near um, Main Street and High Street, right at the corner there. And we put up some purple lights starting on October 1st and we will take them down on the last day in October just to show victims and survivors that they're not alone.
0: Great. And, and how did purple become the color? What, what, what's the origins of that? Any ideas? Not
1: really sure, but it's been
2: the colorful. Somebody time, else has honestly. chosen red and <laughs> yeah. somebody else has
0: chosen white, so purple part is the color. Part of that. Yeah.
2: I, I, I absolutely agree that a big part of it is to let victims know that they're not alone. Mm. It really is so important because mm. one of the things that an abuser does is try so hard to convince them that nobody else cares. Mm-hmm. Nobody else even knows what's going on. Nobody would care if they did know it. It's not anybody's business but our own, that kind of thing. So that the idea that the community cares is really, really important. But I also believe there's a larger message that it kind of gives to all of us, whether or not we're particularly involved with a domestic violence situation or know anybody that is. I think that we try, we're trying very hard to get the same sort of publicity, support, whatever all else that Mothers Against Drunk Driving did. I mean, it really started out a very similar sort of pattern in that society kind of turned its back on drunk drivers. We certainly knew lots of people that weren't arrested that would just be pulled over and say, oh, you know, go sober up, have a cup of coffee or something. You know, I mean, there was a pattern of you know, when we had people at our house just turning our backs, if we, even though we knew they were had a little bit too much to drink, we'd think, well, you know, that's kind of the way people are. Um, I really credit Mothers Against Drunk Driving and really turning that around. And I'm not saying that there isn't still some societal acceptance, but it's changed dramatically over mm. in a really short period of time. And what we're really trying to do is create that same sort of social change where people just get... That, um, like drunk driving, domestic violence is not acceptable. It's dangerous to anyone and everyone. It's dangerous to the health of our communities. And in order to really change that around, we've all got to be willing to step forward and, and say,
0: we don't believe in this, we don't believe in this behavior. Mm. Mm. Again, I'll remind listeners they can participate as we talk about putting an end to domestic violence in this month that uh, honors and, and uh, calls attention to the issue of domestic violence. And you can participate as well by calling one 625 9378 or 469 here locally. Um, Rick, can we bring you into the conversation and talk about your work, both with uh, the Next Step Domestic Violence um, Project um, and your work on the uh, uh, statewide commission, main commission for domestic and sexual abuse.
3: Sure. Uh, with, the, uh, <clears throat> with the agency I, I uh, work with a legal team that's made up of myself and four staff court advocates and uh, paralegal. And some of those are half-time positions so you know we have a person who's part-time paralegal and part-time uh, staff court advocate. And we also have some volunteer court advocates. And with that legal team uh, I represent people, victims and survivors of domestic violence in Ellsworth, in the district court in Callas, and the district court in Machias. And <clears throat> what we do primarily is represent people uh, or help people with protection from abuse actions. Uh, this is something that that uh, your listeners might know as a, a restraining order. Um, and, um, uh, protection from abuse order can, can help uh, a victim of domestic violence by uh, putting a buffer between uh, her, and I'll say her because that's predominantly uh, the, the victim of mm-hmm. domestic violence, uh, between her and the abuser. And, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a, a magic solution, uh, but it is a useful tool, and it, um, it can be an important first step. In uh, batterer accountability, in making that abuser accountable for for the behavior, which, as as Laurie said earlier, is actually a course of behavior that that unfolds over months and years. Uh, so that's we, we spend a lot of our time uh, helping people with protection from abuse actions. And so
0: they, they might come to Next Step or any shelter in the state, um, um, really, and um, their situation becomes known, and then if um, it's possible to use legal assistance to address that issue, you've got a team of folks who can help with that. That's right. Mm. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah, We do have a call. Let's take that call. Go ahead, uh, give us your name if you'd like to, and where you're calling from, and then go ahead with your question or comment.
2: Hi, my name is Edie Howland, and I have a a practice in classical homeopathy in Blue Hill. And the reason I'm calling is that I want people to know with Domestic Violence Awareness Month that homeopathy can provide a lot of support, uh, both in an immediate acute situation, if someone has been raped or beaten, and it can also really help a person strengthen emotionally. And... Not everyone knows that, so I just wanted to add that to help educate our, our uh, community.
0: So you're saying that, that um, if people um, have been raped or have been in violent situations, um, there are a variety of, of ways to address the physical body as well as the mental health, and homeopathy it, plays a role in that.
2: Yes, Exactly thank
0: you okay thanks for your call this morning we welcome calls Um one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight or four six nine zero five zero zero i suppose that um... again we'll come back to the some of the legal work but when um... victims um... come to you tell us a little bit about that process um... Lori.
2: when i did a presentation one time i actually did wrote up a series of cards that kind of gave the pattern of what happens very often with when a person person first reaches out to us and I, I think the people that heard it were kind of surprised. But I would say very often that first contact that we have the person spends half their time apologizing for bothering us in the first place. It's kind of like, oh I don't know, maybe my situation isn't so bad, maybe I created this, maybe I did you know, they they they've been hearing that kind of squashing of their spirit for so long that they really feel that they have to keep apologizing for even bothering us in the first place. So, and they tend to minimize what actually happened in that first instance. Even if they have had police involvement, they tend to say, "Oh well, you know, I felt really bad that he got arrested, or I felt bad that I caused this, or or whatever. I felt, you know, I'm having second thoughts." And there's there's and not that much has really happened and. It takes a process for them to, to keep calling, to keep coming, to keep working with them very often for them to be able to even work through that first that apology and then that really kind of looking at it and almost being able to accept for themselves what's happened and then to be able to talk about it. I think when people are living with a really dangerous abuser, they learn how to almost not really believe themselves everything that's going on it's, it's, a, it's a safety mechanism strangely enough, but it is how they kind of get through the day and how they manage to to survive often by not being as confronted or whatever all else as they might otherwise be. so they need to keep talking about it and sometimes they need to even think about it we, we, one of the things that all of us do is to try to help people think about getting safe that's the biggest mm-hmm. single issue that we have mm-hmm. first and foremost that's safety. And one of the things that we do is talk about, uh, try to get them to talk about what's actually gone on. And and it's a process for them to be able to, to come up and, and admit what's gone on to themselves, to us, to whatever, and then talk about how they could, what they could do to be safer in that situation. Mm. That's the usual call. And then I can tell you, that there's no such thing as a wrong call. If somebody calls up and they're irate to begin with because of what happened, that's okay. And if somebody uh, walks in the door and has a completely different story, I don't want to ever say that there's only one thing that's right because mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. that's a message too that we get out inadvertently sometimes.
0: So the, the, um, the person who calls um, often is dealing with their own belief system that's been polluted if if you could say by the abusers belief system and it's really hard to to change the beliefs that have been they've taken in Uh, they might not have grown up with that belief but they've taken it in because of the relationship that's gone on over a period of years it one of the things that people say well that would never happen to me again I I would
2: really question if you really think about that if you're just sitting in a room of other people and and all the other people in the room swear that Somebody just walked in the door and left, you know, even if, even if you didn't see that happen and you're, you, you know, you start out saying, no, that didn't happen. If everybody else tells you over and over again, yes, it did. They Mm -hmm. were here. They were, you know, what's wrong with you? And and they say it forcefully enough and with enough exertion and, and they're often the only voice maybe that you hear. After a while, you'll start to question yourself. You really will. It's a Mm -hmm. it's a human reaction to things. Uh, One of the interesting studies that was done a number of years ago was turned into a thing called Bitterman's Chart of Coercion, which was a study that they did with a remarkable similarity between victims of domestic violence and prisoners of war. Mm. There's a very strong similarity. They have a jailer, in essence, who is responsible for their safety, who's responsible for whether or not they get fed often, whether or not they have money, whether or not they can feed their children, they, they, who's responsible for their happiness and their sadness and whatever all else. And if they figure out a way to appease that jailer, maybe they'll be treated well, maybe they won't. But there's at least a chance mm-hmm. that they will, and and so people start responding to it, and and people realize that when prisoners of war leave a, a camp, they often would like be thankful to the the for the slightest kindness, would even kind of. Um, apologize for that person and and it's very similar pattern that happens in cases where there's been prolonged domestic violence. Mm.
0: So again a willingness to to make the first call um, to begin to examine their own situation but your point is make sure that um, we can provide some safety. Absolutely. So there's a shelter aspect to Next Step and many others throughout the state tell tell what you want to about that uh, about the shelter process well we do
2: we are able to peop uh, to put people into a shelter. We have a physical shelter that's the kind of thing I think when people have an image of what a domestic violence shelter is. It is in fact a building and it's a uh, there's a lot of bedrooms and people can go there and and hopefully the location is secret, although in small towns it's not always easy to mm-hmm. keep things secret for terribly long um, that's a good safe place to be, and we have a lot of um, alarm systems around there, when the police are very well aware, and um, that area physically is as safe as it can be. What unfortunately is true is that that doesn't necessarily work out for everybody. Um, first, somehow those locations do become known at some point. So if somebody's in an extremely dangerous situation, that may not be the best choice. We can and have um, a network of safe homes that are basically people who just live in the community. That are willing to come forward and say, kind of the way the movement mm. first started. Yes. Um, somebody can hide out in my basement, as it were. But somebody can stay in my house for a day or two while they're getting their plans together, while they get the protection order, while they do the other things they need to do to be safer. Um, and that's somebody that I won't know at all, and that will have no. The abuser would have no reason to think, you know, we live in Sedgwick, and and this house is in. Uh, Machias or whatever, mm-hmm. and and so there's no reason for the person to go there, and that's an extremely safe situation for at least a couple of days. Um, and then in our worst case scenarios, we can actually help people um, transport. One time, a number of years ago, but we actually had we uh, were working with a woman, and the the guy was so dangerous, and the police knew he was so dangerous. What they actually did was help us range um, to have rides offered by police departments from one lo- end of yes. their location mm-hmm. to the next and mm-hmm. we got her, her all the way out of the state with that, mm-hmm. which was pretty amazing that all those different police departments came together. In other situations it's not that bad. People would rather go to a friend's house or a neighbor's house. People would rather stay in their own house with a protection order. There's a lots of different ways that people can be safe and sometimes people want to stay for a while. They, for whatever combination of reasons the kids don't want to leave school. The part, they don't want to leave their place of employment. There's reasons why they need to stay there, and and then we do what we call safety planning with them to stay. and And it can be everything. We can have some really odd conversations sometimes when we're doing that safety planning. I think to somebody who's never done it, they wouldn't understand what we're doing. But we will talk about what window you could crawl out of in the worst case scenario, where you know where you could hide a set of keys if you needed to have. To leave quickly, we can we'll, we don't force anybody to do anything. I think sometimes people are afraid to call us because they think if I call next step, they're going to make me
0: leave and they're going right. to stick
2: me in a shelter. And which it's one be might weird.
0: be you know that this is this is a private nonprofit organization. This is not the state. It is not the state. Right. We do if we
2: hear about child abuse, we do have okay. air-mandated right. reporters, and right. and if we believe that the person is. In immediate danger of murder or uh, suicide, we have to do something. But other than that, it's completely confidential. Everything that we hear is confidential. And more than anything else, and I think people have a hard time kind of understanding that we don't pressure anybody into doing anything. We don't tell them, we know better than you, we know you have to do this, or you know, you must do that, or whatever all else. What we're all about is listening to them and hearing them because they may be confused a bit at first, but when it comes right down to it, they know what's best for them. Mm-hmm. They know what's safest for them. They know what they're able to handle and what they're able to do. And we absolutely respect that, and we work with them around whatever they want to do to be as safe as possible.
0: So it sounds like you're calling out the truth that's inside of them, that they may have been, may have been obscured by living with an abuser who has a, a belief system that it's okay to um, have that kind of manipulation.
2: Absolutely, right? and they really need to have somebody that just believes them mm. and just listens to them and, and believes that they are capable of figuring out for themselves what they need to do mm-hmm. and whatever all else.
0: Locally at 469-0500 or toll-free 866 6259378 you're on Talk of the Towns and we've got guests in the studio who are helping with us with the question of putting an end to domestic violence. Lori fogelman Kelly Brown and Rick Doyle all associated with the Next Step Domestic Violence program of Hancock and Washington Counties. Um bring Rick back into the conversation. So um, we had talked um a little bit earlier about the uh protection order. Um, are there other arrows in your quiver? What else sure, might yeah. be happening?
3: Yeah. We, uh, we also help people with uh, divorce actions, uh, parental, unmarried parental rights and responsibilities actions, or post-judgment motions like motions for contempt, motions to enforce, motions to modify. And that's kind of, uh, uh, we do what we can. I'm essentially a sole practitioner, and we talk to a lot of people who need legal services, and we help as many of them as we, as we possibly can, but of course the need is, is very great. Uh, and in in some of those court actions, uh, the the victim and survivor of abuse can start to work out some of the issues that have made things complicated and made it hard uh, for her to to get away from this. Uh, the financial issues, the property issues, and probably most importantly of all, the parental rights issues. Mm-hmm. Um, because as Lori said earlier, uh, it's not at all unusual for an abuser to use the children as uh, a weapon or a tool right. uh, in order to exercise power and control over this victim.
0: You've seen some changes probably in your uh, practice in terms of the, the legal system, both law enforcement and the court system, um, providing kind of greater support. Um, talk a th- little bit about that uh, that trend that you're seeing and, and yeah. perhaps your own experience here in, in Hancock County.
3: I, I think I have seen that, and, and um, I've only been a lawyer for five years. I've only been a domestic violence advocate for five years, so I have a very narrow mm-hmm. slice of history. Mm-hmm. But I think even in that five years, I can see progress. And I think we we have to measure progress by small steps, although I really like what you're saying, Ron. Uh, th- th- this is a program about how to end domestic violence. Too mm. often, I think, we say mm-hmm. we're dealing with domestic violence, but we really are trying to end domestic violence. Mm. And I think there have been really some significant changes since I started uh, as a domestic violence advocate. And one of those would be uh, the domestic violence uh, crimes that were created here in Maine in the, in the past year. Uh, we've always had uh, the crime of assault on the books in Maine, but uh, this past year, the legislature just enacted a statute that provides for domestic violence assault. And what that does is it allows the prosecutor to, to bring in um, uh, prior convictions for domestic assault, either in this jurisdiction or in another and it enables the court to use that history of a course of conduct over years when and to factor that in when it comes to, uh time to sentence uh the the person so uh, that's a really significant change, I think.
0: And w- when that was being debated in the legislature, was there was that controversial, or is that have have we reached a place where, you know, people understood the, the need for this added um, uh, protection?
3: I, I think. Well, I think I think both, both of those things yeah, are true. Right. Yeah, I think uh, anything involved with domestic violence uh, brings with it a lot of controversy, and mm-hmm. I think that uh, also there's been a. a because of the efforts of the domestic violence movement over the years to create a coordinated community response and to and you know the efforts of people like Kelly and Lori uh, out in the community educating uh, everyone about uh, what what domestic violence really is because of all of those efforts, I think um, you know, there was a sense that this was necessary and an improvement in the law, mm-hmm. and, uh,
0: and you know, the law passed. Mm-hmm. We'll know? come back to some of those uh, questions, but we do have a call. Go ahead with your question or comment, please. You're on Talk of the Towns.
1: Hi. Um,
2: yeah, I was just wondering if you could talk about where these men learn to be so cagey in terms of using these tactics that are so much like uh, prisoner of war stuff. You know, I know some of it must come from observing it as children, but... I'm curious about other
0: avenues where they've figured this out and what can be done hmm. okay, thank you that's an interesting question thanks for your your call this morning one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight if you'd like to participate in talk of the towns Lori, some response or Kelly it starts with belief and then it becomes behavior
2: I think there's so many different ways that that message is is put, put across in our society and and that's exactly what the problem is I think So often when we have societal problems, we think, well, one size fits all. Why does somebody become an alcoholic? It's because of this. Why does somebody become an abuser? It's because of that. And if we can figure out what the that is, then we can fix it. And it's a lot more complicated than that, as as this color implies. Certainly, people have the idea that domestic violence is a generational thing, and you learn it from the previous generation, and you continue on with that behavior. And sometimes that's true. There are definitely um families that ha- have internalized really negative belief systems and teach that to their children and it goes on and on but equally possible are all the other ways we give messages out there in society about what a man is supposed to be i know there the the image the one that we have on one of our videos which i thought was really fascinating was just the image if we just look at what the difference is in terms of what we say is now to the ideal sized man versus the ideal sized woman i mean that by itself isn't domestic violence related but if we think about the difference between say Marilyn Monroe who had a round figure and a beautiful to me still body and and, a, and whatever and then now where where the ideal female image has to be a size zero that even a, the two or something is no longer good the thinner smaller basically almost invisible female is what's the ideal now and and then we look at the ideal male and, and we go from uh, the Superman figure that was on TV when I was young, who was really a more or less normal-sized guy, maybe a little bit bigger than um, than absolutely normal, and, and they knew
0: that those muscles were all padded. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's true.
2: And now we have this uh, image of of the ideal man as this huge, massive, right. whatever-all-else kind of thing, and and the images and songs and things. I mean, it still goes on. I know. that's been going on for a very long time. And there's stuff that I, when, again, when I was young, was there was a Beatles song. You better run for your life if you can, little girl. Hide your head in the sand, little girl. That's going to be the end. I mean, what, what we used to actually like sing to that and and Mm. say, oh, gee, that's great. Um, It's gotten maybe worse in some of the hip hop sort of stuff. It's certainly not any better. But even in the most kind of benign quote unquote messages, I there was a Britney Spears song that was Hit Me Baby One More Time. That, mm-hmm. was, that was a big hit just mm-hmm. a, a little while ago. And yes, it was supposed to be you know, not uh, physical hitting, and yet it was kind of ambivalent, and it sure. gave that message. And we still do give that message over and over again out there.
0: But I can imagine also that um, the abuser learns through behavior what works for him or her, but mostly him, and they adapt very quickly to what works. They're getting something out of that behavior, and um, they will just try other behaviors, and when it works, they will continue to use that. So it isn't necessarily learned from someone else, but there's something um, flawed in the belief system and in the person that causes them to believe and act in the way they're doing.
2: I think one of the things that we need to be honest about is that it makes them feel good. Mm. That behavior when they see themselves as more powerful, more important, somewhere in this big world where we're lost and lonely little people, somewhere, damn it, you know, I'm in charge and I'm strong and I'm wonderful. That feeling for a lot of people is a really good feeling. So that, yes, they'll do anything that they need to do once they find that happens one time and then maybe the next time it's not so effective. That's the, when mm. we get the ratcheting up thing mm. where they keep on the behavior. And,
0: and that's probably worse. the topic for another show, of uh, how we help people um, with, with that kind of flaw. Absolutely. Um, um, Rick, I know that um, in terms of you're on this uh, statewide commission for domestic violence and sexual abuse, and one of the things that they're doing is some domestic violence uh, forums. Talk yes. a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, that's that's right, Ron. Uh, this was uh, These came about in response to some legislation that was introduced by Senator Sullivan uh, from, I think, from York County last year. Uh, and the Department of Public Safety got involved, and the commission got involved with setting up forums, a series of forums around the state, uh, where the public was invited to come and sit down with the uh, with the uh, Department of Public Safety, uh, qu- which quite often means actually the commissioner ann mm. jordan she 's mm. actually been present for most of these forums um, and with uh, different agencies and people who are involved with domestic violence issues in any given place and so uh, we've been uh, th- those forums have taken place from one end of the state to the other. They've gotten you know a variety of turnouts, really small crowds for some of them, pretty good-sized crowds for others. Uh, some of them have been covered well by the media. Some of them haven't. Uh, we had one in Washington County, I guess, a couple of months ago that I thought was very interesting, and I really uh, enjoyed having a chance to sit down and talk with everybody. And we've got one coming up in Hancock County, um, maybe the third week of October. Uh, I, I think we're still trying to settle the date, but mm-hmm. around the 20th, 21st. Mm-hmm.
0: What was um, interesting about the Washington County experience? What did you learn as a, a member of the commission? I suppose that that's one of the reasons you're doing this. You're kind of getting some reality checks from the community.
3: Yeah, I think uh, for me, as a, I, I sat in on this forum, not as a member of the commission, oh, but okay. as the attorney from okay. the next step. But uh, I think what uh, I talked with Ann Jordan about this not too long ago, and I think what she's getting is a sense of how, uh, how agencies really work together uh, to deal with domestic violence, and I think that uh, the Washington County forum was a really good example of showing how agencies uh, talk to each other, how they understand each other, how they complement each complement each other or don't. You know, mm-hmm. and it was also interesting because we had a good turnout of um, of people whose families have been affected by domestic violence in really dramatic ways, mm-hmm. and uh, it was very powerful for me to see. Somebody who had had a family member who had a, was a victim of domestic violence speak face to face to the commissioner and mm. say, this is what's been going on mm. for me. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a powerful thing for the commissioner, too. Mm-hmm. I think she really feels like she's learned something in going out.
0: Lori, how, how do you um, get support for your work? And, and I know that there was a legislative piece in that. Talk a little bit about your general um, uh, kind of budget and how you support that and um, what monies you might get from, from public sources. We have a kind of smorgasbord budget.
2: Most of the money, honestly, comes from a contract we have with this. The, with that money goes through the Department of Health and Human Services. And uh, about for us as as a one of the smaller projects, that's a very important part of what we do. We also do all sorts of fundraising. We all have all sorts of grants. We do anything and everything, including our chocolate fest, which we have every February, which is, I think, our most fun fundraiser, where we have uh, donations of people, goods, and services and silent auction, and we also have just lots. A really good chocolate to eat and just kind of celebrate and talk together. But back to the state and federal funding that comes through the Department of Health and Human Services. This past winter, we, of course, had a near disaster as an agency and statewide because the budget crisis hit the state. And we are certainly very much aware that it's hard financial times and that it's difficult for everybody and difficult choices need to be made. But the recommendation from the commissioner um, it was to cut out all state funding for domestic violence and sexual assault projects. That would have meant us losing 25% of our budget, which would have been crippling. It would be so hard to do what we do. Luckily, we were able to get together a, a whole big group of survivors across the state. We had about 1,000 people to, pit, to descend on the State House one day and, uh, in March, and it was the most Moving incredible thing first just by the sheer number of people who came forward and said you can't do this Our lives depend on this. Please don't do this. I mean just the numbers.
0: You you say life in some cases that is actually life
2: Absolutely, and and I and to see their faces I think it really made a big impact on the legislators and and a few really courageous incredible people went forward and after having experienced all sorts of pain and whatever in their lives just looked at the legislators eye to eye and said this is the story of my life. This is me. This is what the next step or some other project across the state did for me. And their stories were so powerful and and really made people realize what a serious problem it really is in our state. Thankfully, they restored all our funding now. That was this past winter, sure. Lord only knows what's gonna happen to sure. this one. It's tough sure. times. But
0: well I I keep many of our shows, I keep coming to my own conclusion, we really are all this in. All in this together Absolutely. and until we figure out how we provide the kind of services that we we need in our society um, it's going to be a struggle it's, it's a big a struggle. struggle and yeah. it's not as if we
2: are unaware that that every victim of domestic violence every person that we know has complicated lives with many different problems and mm-hmm. and each one of those programs that are out there that help people are important <laughs> we don't want to say that you know domestic violence projects are, are really important but uh, fuel programs aren't important. I mean, right. it's, it's, it's
0: tough right. things. We've got just two minutes left, so I'll give each of you a chance, um, starting perhaps with Kelly. What, what, what's your hope as you think about the prog- programs that you're involved in um, as you move forward? Um, we'll start with Kelly and, and uh, then go to Rick and then um, to Lori.
1: Well, I believe that what's really going to create change is community education, and that's why I love my job is going out and speaking to people and letting them know what domestic violence is and what they can do to help and really getting into the schools and starting with our youth and talking about bullying, hands are not for hitting, words Mm. are not for hurting, things like that, and getting into the schools. So I would encourage all school systems to have us come in and speak with the youth because that's where we're going to see change. Great.
0: Rick?
3: I think I would echo that. I, my greatest hope is that uh, uh, kids of my son's age, you know, middle school kids right now, boys especially, are starting to learn those critical thinking skills and, and whatever else they need to, to grow up and not be abusers.
0: Great. And Laurie, um, as well as giving your, your uh, um, hope, also list your phone number. Thank you very
2: much. Yes. <laughs> I would have to say honestly, my greatest hope long range is that we go out of business because we did mm. they didn't need us anymore. Mm. I'd love to sell plants or something and do something completely different and a whole lot less stressful, frankly. 6670176 is our office number here in Ellsworth. one eight hundred three one five 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 seven nine is our hotline number, and we're always willing to talk to anybody.
0: Great, and um, those numbers are for the Hancock and Washington County areas, but exactly. every county in the state has some form of domestic climate support.
2: And in Washington County, to reach us more directly, two five five three four. Two five five three four nine five is our office number up there.
0: Great, Thank you. Great. Well, thanks so much. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association, with offices in each county. Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Fridays of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Koranak on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests from uh, Next Step Domestic Violence Program of Hancock and Washington Counties, Lori Fogelman, who's the executive director, Kelly Brown, who's the program uh, manager, and Rick Doyle with legal assistance. Uh, thanks to those of you called with your questions and experience. Thanks to our underwriters. Uh, thanks for, to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing with Elaine. This is Ryan Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning.